Our passage this morning will be 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. We'll take a look at that in a little bit together. As I was thinking about this passage this morning, I wonder if you've had this experience. You ever been on a really long airplane flight where the seat in front of you has a tablet where you can watch movies? And we used to take these flights a lot to Central Asia. And on the way there, you could fit in at least three movies, three and a half if you really work on it. It's really bad because you get there and you're like totally worn out. You haven't slept a wink and it's morning there, so you gotta stay up another 12 hours. And I don't recommend it if you ever do that. So after a couple of those really long flights of no sleep and ruinous week after that, I made a rule for myself, one movie, at the beginning, sleep, and if you sleep, you can fit in another one at the end. So I'd watch my movie, fall asleep very poorly, doze for a while, and I'd wake up and you know, look over, check on the kids. Yep, one, two, three, four, they're all there. Joey's there. Got crackers sitting on my table in front of me. And I'd kind of look over and guy in the seat in front of me across the aisle, what's he watching? Oh yeah, that looks like a good movie. I don't really know what's going on in it. But I'd watch and you know they got uh, subtitles there so I can read what's going on, I can watch what's going on. I can't hear a thing because he's watching or listening through his earbuds. But I sit there and I watch the stinking movie that I have half a clue what it's about and try to keep up by watching the subtitles. If we were to just jump into our passage this morning, that's where we would be. Isn't that a great introduction? I mean, (laughs) Justin, you're welcome. Um, That's where we would be this morning if we just jumped into chapter 10, verse 14. Because Paul has been making an argument since the beginning of the book. And if we just jumped in in verse 14, we wouldn't have a clue where we are. We'd get the gist of what's going on, but we wouldn't really understand it. And so today, I want us to take a quick jaunt back through how we've gotten here in 1 Corinthians so that we can really understand what Paul is telling us today. Because if we don't get this, we might come away from today's sermon thinking this isn't about us. This is about idol worshipers. And that's not us, right? Right? Hold that thought. We're showing up part of the way through the movie today, or in this case, Paul's argument. As such, we need to ask some serious questions to catch up to the storyline so that we don't miss what God the Holy Spirit, through the agency of the Apostle Paul, wants the Corinthian church in this letter 2,000 years ago and us here at Grace Church in Smyrna this morning to know. So remember... Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth is in Greece. He's writing to them so that they might be comforted. He's writing to them in order to confront them. And he's writing to them in order to answer specific questions that they've written and asked him. So far, he's given guidance to them on divisions in the church. You're not Paul's church or Apollos' church or anyone else's church. You're God's church, he says. 
He's confronted them on their allowance of grave public sin in the church and that for the sake of Christ's name, they must expel the person so that, quote, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's given direction to the believers there, taking other believers to court without settling the problem within the church itself. He's talked to them about sex, about marriage, and the wisdom of believers getting married to other believers if their, quote, passions are strong. That gets us up to chapter 8. Today we're in chapter 10. But in chapter 8, Paul turns the topic to that of food that has been sacrificed to idols. Today we're in the middle of chapter 10, and he's still talking about that. He hasn't turned from that topic yet. Back in chapter 8, verse 4, Paul gives us a truth tidbit that he'll expand on in our passage today. He says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Well then, Paul says, idols aren't real. So feel free to whatever, eat whatever you want. If it's been sacrificed to them, go ahead. That's if you only read verse 4 of chapter 8. Because he goes on the rest of chapter 8 to give an empathetic argument regarding the fact that there is nothing ontologically wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols, ontologically, in its very being. It is, after all, just protein and fat. Tasty, tasty, protein and fat. But while the meat itself isn't sinful, knowingly partaking of sacrificed meat may be. In chapter 8, verse 10, Paul cautions, quote, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if Food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. End quote. So no more tasty, tasty protein and fat, Paul says. Why? What's wrong with this meat that's been sacrificed to idols? It's for the sake of the brother who isn't yet ready to live without being tempted to go back into a life of these no-gods being worshipped through these idols. So, still in the context of idol worship, Paul moves on to chapter 9 to talk about his and the Corinthians and our freedom in the gospel of Christ. We are free. Indeed, we have the right through Christ to eat, drink, marry, Paul says. We are free. But in verse 12 of chapter 9, he says, Nevertheless, 
we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In fact, the freedoms that we have, that we really do have, Paul encourages us to see them differently than freedoms. He says in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. Not to be an obstacle to belief to those who don't yet know the freedom that comes through Christ. Eat meat sacrifice to idols because idols are nothing. There are no gods but the one true God, he says. But there are those who believe that they are real. And when they see you eating that meat, and you knowingly eating meat that came from temples, it's not that you're eating to an idol, it's that you're condemning your brother's conscience. So he says, I have freedom, but I made myself a servant so that I might win them. So here's Paul's argument. There are no such thing as gods. Eat the meat sacrificed to the gods if you want through the object of that idol and be guilt-free except that there are some believers who are not yet ready to separate their conscience from that lifestyle of idol worship. So rather than harm them, it's best if you don't knowingly eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. You are free, but don't hold that freedom to be more important than loving and serving others in the gospel. But then beginning in our passage last week, in chapter 10, Paul begins to turn the ship of his argument, slowly but purposefully, to another reason that the Corinthian believers should not partake of this idol meat. Eating meat sacrificed to idols, even though idols aren't real, may sidetrack you from walking the path of Christ. He lays out the story of Israel last week. Israel in the wilderness. They were brought into covenant with God. They had a baptism. They had spiritual food and drink in a sense. They drank from Christ, the rock, Paul tells us. But they didn't leave the wilderness. They died there. Why? Because they were overthrown by God, Paul tells us. Why? Because they went down the wrong path. They had been sidetracked. They had seen the plagues brought on Egypt. They had seen and heard the death wrought by the death angel sent from God as the final plague was doled out on all the land. They saw the sea open up before them. They felt the dry ground beneath their feet as they crossed through with walls of water on each side. They heard the chaotic crashes behind them as those same waters crashed in on Pharaoh's army. They tasted the provision of manna and water in the middle of the wilderness. They saw the pillar of cloud and fire go before them, leading them to the promised land. They spoke in acceptance of God's covenant to them when they finally arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. But even as Moses is going up to receive those covenant stipulations written on tablets of stone, they're down the mountain taking all their golden trinkets and melting them and forming a golden calf to worship.
Paul says, if these people who had all of their senses taken up with God, all of the sights and sounds and tastes and smells and feels of what it's like to be in the presence of the one true God could so quickly be tempted to idol worship, then Corinthian church, you should be even more careful, Paul argues. Do you think that it's out of the realm of possibility that because you are so strong and wise, Corinthian church, that you won't do the same? And so Paul ends last week's passage with take heed lest you too fall. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Well, at least Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church where they actually had idol worship. They had a temple of Apollos there, or Apollo there. He's speaking to them, right? Has nothing to say to us here at Grace Church in Smyrna, Tennessee this morning, right? Well, let's read our passage and see where this left off. I'll begin reading in chapter 10, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot... Drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? We're going to look at this passage through three main points this morning. First is going to be a command. The next two are going to be two reasons why we should listen to the command. Okay, so command, two reasons why we should listen to the command. So first, look at verse 14. Here's the command. Flee idolatry. Our passage begins in verse 14 as Paul continues his argument that he started back in chapter 8. Paul ended the passage from last week in verse 13 speaking of this way of escape that God would provide them with when they were being tempted. And in context of what we've just looked at, it's not simply all sin, though that may be true that God will give you a path of escape. It's particularly, God, Paul is talking about the, the sin of being tempted towards idol worship. And in today's passage, we see Paul's direction as to the best way of escape. And that is 
to get out of that temptation. You don't even go to these not-God temple feasts. Flee from idolatry, he tells us. If you don't want to be tempted into idol worship like Israel was, like the Corinthian populace is, then don't take part in it. The best defense is a good offense, right? The best fight is the one you don't get into. The way you fight this particular temptation is don't go to the place where you're going to be tempted. As one commentator noted, believers must not deliberately enter temptations. Believers must not deliberately enter temptations and then expect deliverance. Why would you do that? Well, in our passage, Paul begins with the word therefore, and when you see the word therefore, you always need to ask what it's there for. And almost always, it's Paul drawing a conclusion. If these things are true that I've been talking about since chapter 8, then this must be true. Therefore, this must be true. If Israel could be tempted to idol worship, while they were in the middle of being given in the covenant tablets, then you, too, Corinthian church, can be tempted to idol worship. You see what he's doing here? He's made the argument, yes, idols aren't real, so the meat sacrificed to them is okay for you to eat, but you shouldn't eat it. Why? For the sake of other believers? Now he's turned the ship, and he's looking at each Corinthian and saying, be careful, don't be foolish like Israel was. If they can be tempted, could you too not be tempted to idol worship? Your way out of this temptation, he says to the church there, is to get away from idol worship. But the tasty steaks flee, he says. But the lamb, it tastes so good. Run away, he says. But those Corinthians always tempted by those tasty temple treats. We don't have to worry about that, right? Because we as a society have moved beyond idol worship, right? There aren't things out there in the world that pull our affections away from loving Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Or are there things that we should be fleeing because they are drawing our focus and away from devotion to Jesus? What is a temple or an idol anyway? They're human-made constructs that allow us to give overmuch devotion, attention, and affection to something that is not Jesus. you never struggle with that, right? Or are there things we should be fleeing because they are drawing our focus away from him? 
Are you giving over much devotion, attention, and affection to things that are not Jesus? Are you loving yourself more than you're loving others? Are you using things in your life in ways that are harmful to yourself and others? What's drawing your focus away from Jesus? Any habits? Entertainments? Recreation? Sports? Politics? Relationships? Family? Hmm. Maybe then the Holy Spirit can use Paul's words to the Corinthian church to speak to us here in Smyrna this morning. Are you being tempted by things that want to steal your time, devotion, and affection away from Christ? That's the question we have to answer. Because if there are things that are doing that to you, then those things are effectually idols in your life. And what is Paul's word when we're tempted to worship an idol? Flee. Why? Point number two, reason number one. Why should you flee idolatry? Because we are bound in covenant to Christ. That's his first reason. Come on, Paul, it's really not that big of a deal. You've already said the idols aren't real, that the meat is just that tasty, tasty protein and fat. Eat up. And Paul gives us a helpful, helpful reason here for fleeing idolatry, beginning in verse 15. He says, reason for yourselves, sensible people. Now remember, the Corinthians at root thought of themselves as sensible, logical, rational people. Philosophy is coming out of Corinth. This is what they lived on. And so he says, reason with me here, Corinthian church. Think with me. Don't, I'm not just going to tell you what to do. I want you to think with me. I want you to think through this this morning as well. Use your minds, your sanctified, Holy Spirit-influenced minds to consider his argument here. It focuses on something that they and we are well acquainted with and that we take part in regularly. See in verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord's Supper, right? He's taking these elements of bread and the cup and helping us understand what's really going on there. The cup, the bread, when we partake of them together as a church, Paul says we are, what, participating in the blood and body of Christ. The word used here for participation is the Greek word you're probably familiar with, koinonia, often translated as fellowship. <laughs> that we have fellowship in the body and blood of Jesus, though, isn't exactly what Paul is saying here. The gist of what he's saying is when we partake in the elements of the table, 
we are having participation vertically with God, with Jesus. When we partake in these elements, it's not magic. They don't become the actual body and blood of Jesus, but we are joining in his sacrifice of himself and vertically having communion with him. But we do it together horizontally. It's vertical and it's horizontal. It is Jesus gathering his people together and reminding them of his sacrifice and their oneness. So Paul reminds us here of the covenant of grace that Jesus' body and blood represent. They were given for us, his body and his blood, so that we as a people might be unified and might be sanctified. Do remember, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is communion. We are communing with Jesus, but we're not communing with Jesus alone. Communion isn't a time for you and Jesus to go on a little mind date together while the rest of us sing a hymn. Paul is telling us here that communion is about communing with Jesus, but it's also about communing with one another. He says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we're partaking in this bread with Jesus, we are partaking of it together as a unified whole. As one writer said, because we are one in Christ, we are one with one another. So then, in the middle of this context of idolatry, see what Paul is warning us of. The sin of idolatry doesn't just affect you. Your tangential relationships with idolatrous things doesn't just affect you. You are part of a covenant community, and therefore you must consider one another as you also consider Jesus. Our unity with one another and Jesus in mind then, Paul points back to Israel as an example for Corinth and for us. Look at Israel's practice of temple worship. He says, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? If you, church, say and show up you are, and show that you are covenanted together with Jesus and with one another, and then you go and take part in food at not-God-idol temples, isn't that confusing? Isn't there something wrong about that? What does that tell your friends down at the temple about the fulfillment that you have in Jesus? Or in our context, you come in and you sing, All I Have is Christ on Sunday. But you're hanging out at your idol temple, whatever that is for you, during the week. Participating in the results of that false worship. Eating the meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Church, we are covenantally bound to Jesus and to one another. So let's be careful that our freedom in Christ doesn't lead each other 
or those who don't even yet know Jesus to fall into or stay in a pattern of idolatry. Or that we ourselves don't get sidetracked as well. Because those idols, remember, Paul says, they're not a thing. But the worship of those idols is a thing. So that's reason number one that we should flee because we are covenantally bound to one another. Reason number two that we are to flee idolatry is this. Idolatry is more dangerous than you think. Idolatry has been the besetting sin of the people of God since the beginning. Not just people of God, people in general. All sin is idol worship. We take God, along with his law, off of the throne of our hearts and minds, and we put ourselves, or something else, along with our own law, in his place. You see this in your life, don't you? How quick we are to lose our temper with our siblings or our spouses when they do something that we think is wrong, but we turn around and do the same thing? Or is that just me? You hate it. I'm saying you. We could change pronouns here, but you hate it when someone eats the last of the ice cream, right? See some head shaking. It's the end of your world. How could they dare break my law of thou shalt not eat the last of the ice cream? It's my job. But then it's Friday night. Everybody else is asleep. You got a little rumbly in your tumbly. A little bit of ice cream left. They won't know. They won't see. Lucas, <laughs> they're newlyweds. They've already experienced this. <laughs> it's the last of the pizza, wasn't it? Yeah, it's the last of the pizza. They won't know what I'm doing. and just, just eat it, and then I'll bury it deep in the trash can. No one will ever know. King or queen, you has once again published the law throughout the land. Do as I say, not as I do. Life is good. This is idolatry of ourselves. That's just one example that I've heard some of you tell. I don't really have any firsthand experience in that. But this tendency that we have to serve me first, others can wait, is a pull towards idolatry. And it's more dangerous than you think. So Paul picks up his argument in verse 19. He gives us another therefore to consider here. If eating food sacrificed at an idol temple is you partaking in worship of that idol, what does it mean? Paul continues his statements here. What am I saying? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything, he says? Read that in light of what he said back in verse 4 of chapter 8. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So great, he says, eat, drink, and be merry at the idol temple. 
But he, remember, he continues, no, he says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they are actually offering to demons and not to God. He just went there. Idols are nothing, and so long as it was just a piece of wood or a piece of metal or a piece of clay, there's nothing else to consider except for the conscience of the Christian brother or sister who sees what you're doing and is drawn back to idol worship from that. But Paul completes his slow and purposeful turning of his argument here to warn us that while the idol isn't real, the worship of them is real. In fact, what is being worshipped is not God, in these not God idol temples are not idols, but demons. Taking in the worship that the pagan masses are offering to false gods, stealing their attention away from worshiping Jesus. Paul here is pointing to the pagans as doing this, but as a good Pharisee, he also remembers his Old Testament. He points back to the Israelite sin in the desert in, regard, in this regard by referencing the song of Moses that we see in Deuteronomy 32. In this song, Moses paints the picture of a universe-sized courtroom. You've never read Deuteronomy 32. It's rather long. I'm not going to read it this morning. I'm just going to read parts of it. But go back and read it. It's a majestic picture. God, through Moses, calls this courtroom into being, the size of the universe. He calls to all the things he's created to come. Listen to my arguments, he says. What's the case? Well, the offended party, God, the plaintiff, has done great things for his people Israel. He says there, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. You can accuse him of nothing. He is perfect. That's the plaintiff in this court case. Who's the defendant? His people, Israel. God says there, they have dealt corruptly. They are no longer my children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you in this way repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Well, Moses continues on throughout the chapter, listing out how Israel, the thinkless children of a loving and gracious God, have not worshipped him as he deserves. And then we get to verse 16, where Moses sings this. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were not gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. So Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, ciphers back for them to the Old Testament in this Song of Moses to tell the story of wrong worship that Israel had given to demons back in that golden calf episode. Why bring this up? Because we, church like Israel, have also made a covenant with God. 
And we are to participate or fellowship with him and his people in the bonds of a covenant, not with demons and those that follow them. It's this same covenantal language of participate or have a share in, as Paul used earlier, that he's using in pointing to the table. If we come together to partake in the remembrance of the covenant sacrificed by Jesus by remembering his body and blood shed for us through the elements of this bread and cup, then there is no way that we should be partaking in worship lifestyles of demon worship taking place in idol worship. There are two ways to live, Paul tells us here. You can drink the cup of the Lord and partake in the table of the Lord, or you can drink the cup of demons and partake in the table of demons. You can't do both. So believers, this pulls our attention to ask ourselves, are we intentionally worshiping God? Are you taking part in, are you participating in worship when we gather? Or are you just kind of floating through, making your way to the other side? Are you here, but not here? Are you tuned in, or are you tuned out? This passage is at least a call for us to take worship seriously, right? It's at least that. Who are you worshiping? But further, would an outsider look at your life and be able to tell whose you are? God or idle demons? Where are you spending your time, your talents, your attention? The worship of God is mutually exclusive for all other worship. You cannot serve God and also serve anything or anyone else. His call and His covenant with us is all-encompassing. So why, friends, do you look for spiritual nourishment from another source other than God? As one writer says, it's because we are not consumed with Him. It's not because He's not good or savory or lovely. It's because we're too easily pleased. What in your life is taking preeminence over God? Is it school? Work? Friends? Lovers? Food? Drink? What is stealing your attention from the one that is most good, most just, most beautiful, and most fulfilling? I can't answer that for you. I can only answer for me. But that's Paul's question for you this morning. That's his warning to you this morning. Flee idolatry because it's more important than you think it is. But here, what Paul warns with as he continues to call back to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 Moses says, they have made me jealous. God speaks through Moses. They have made me jealous with what is no God. 
They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Paul picks up that thought and continues in our passage this morning. Shall we provoke the Lord? Are we stronger than he? Now notice the pronoun he uses here. He switches. First person, plural. Paul is putting himself in the equation now. He's writing himself into this story now. He recognizes that he too, Paul, the apostle, has the potential to put something or someone on the throne of his life and worship it. So if Paul, this apostle of freedom, recognizes his own vulnerability to not God worship, and he's reminding us of God's omnipotence in dealing with sin among his people, how then should we live? Should we go on ignoring our sin, making excuses for it, comparing ourselves with others, and giving ourselves a pass? Or should we take God seriously? Taking a page from Paul's method, look back to Israel. How did it go for them? None of that generation of calf idol worshipers made it into the promised land. They broke the covenant. Why? Because they took on the name of God in that covenant but they were not living in relationship with God in the covenant. Have you taken on the name of the Lord in vain? There's multiple ways to break that commandment, right? Take the name, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I think a primary way we do that is saying, I'm Jesus's and then living like a demon's. So, as we conclude today, where are you? Do you see yourself in this passage? Does it apply to you at all? While there's no temple to Apollo to pass as we drive down Sam Ridley, do you give the Lord all of your worship? Or do you save some of it for other things? Some not-gods who can benefit you nothing. All they are doing is drawing you away from worship of the one true God in the person of Jesus. How are you going to deal with that? Remember Paul's initial command in this passage, flee idolatry. But brothers and sisters, you are not in this alone. If this passage reminds us of anything, it's we are not covenanted with God alone and needing to keep his law alone, and needing to follow his commands alone. We are bound together. As we come to this table in a moment, look around the room as you consider Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Every other believer in here partaking of this meal is bound to Jesus in covenant too. And with you. You need us and we need you. But if you're here today and you've not turned away from your sin and begged forgiveness from your Creator for your idol worship 
and all your other sins. Consider Paul's final words here. Shall we provoke the Lord to anger? Are we stronger than he? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no, we're not. So what will you do with this word today? Paul tells you to flee idolatry, but where are you going to go? Flee to where? Jesus calls those who would repent from their sins and trust in him to follow him. He lived an idol-free life and in dying bore the wrath of God for idol worshipers just like you. Not because you are worthy, but because he is loving and good. Is that the kind of God you could give your time and attention and affection to? If so, go to him. Trust in him. Follow him. If you have questions about what that means, come and talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to any believer, church member in here this morning. We would love to talk with you about it. If not today, sometime this week. But don't sleep on this. Because you're not more powerful than he. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to partake of this table, I pray you would draw our hearts and our minds to consider you. To consider the love that you have for us and the love that you would have us have for one another. Help us to do that well this week and right now. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.